everybody and welcome to the NBA podcast. I'm Michael. I'm Joe. And I'm Ellie. And we're here today to talk about the adolescent brain and its development and some implications for the classroom. Contrary to what may be popular belief, your adolescent child does have a brain and it is still developing. It is there. Yeah, and it's not broken. It's just going through what we call a sensitive period. Yeah, so... Um, all yeah all confirmation it is it is there it is working um and it's actually working pretty hard in some instances so um our plan today is to walk through just basic development of what's going on in the adolescent brain and then move on to uh, specifically executive function and then uh, the effects of substances on the growing brain so alcohol and drug use and then lastly we're going to close out with some practical implications linked to development, executive function, and substance use. So uh, first up, what, what is going on in, in this teenage brain development-wise? Well, I think, I think a big thing to kind of start with is that the adolescent brain is not a static thing. It's not done developing. It's not an adult brain just in a younger person. Um, it's not developing in the same ways as a child's brain. There's a lot of development that happens in early childhood that is done or is kind of finished. But there's still a lot going on. There's still a lot of stuff that's changing and not fully formed. So the, uh, the, yeah, the first article I, I'd like to talk about is by Sarah Jane Blakemore, who is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University College of London. And the article I read, uh, she reviewed a number of MRI studies on the developing brain, and she found uh, some consistent findings. So the first one was that there's a steady increase in white matter in, volume in several brain regions for adolescents and there is actually a decrease from childhood to adolescence in gray matter in the frontal and parietal um, cortices. Should we be concerned about this decrease in gray matter? Maybe we want to say what gray and white matter are quickly too. Okay. Yeah. So gray and white matter are kind of two different types of tissue in your brain. The white matter has a lot to do with the connectivity between different parts of your brain. So if you've got, you know, one region of your brain needs to kind of talk to a different region of your brain, that signal is carried along the white matter. Um, it's very important. It's, you know, th those kind of systemic connections are absolutely critical. The gray matter is sort of what people think of, uh, you know, if you just asked somebody, well, what is brain matter? It's, it's the stuff where the thinking, so to speak, happens. It's where... Um, the firing electrically occurs when you activate a region. So if you think about something, you know, if you see an image, part of your brain that's associated with vision, the gray matter is going to light up and have like, ooh, look at that, I just saw a butterfly. And then that signal about a butterfly may get transmitted depending on what your reaction is, what the context you've seen it in, through the white matter to then interact with other regions of your brain. So so the gray matter is basically like where all the, the processing is happening and then the white matter is signals being trans transferred between brain regions. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean that's a good overview and I think it's important to know that our brains overproduce gray matter in the beginning so that we can then prune down to what's really important. So when we say there's a decrease in gray matter, it's not like, oh, that's why they're stupid. It's like, <laughs> it's important <laughs> to have happen. And, and, that, and so in the article, I think that, that was called synaptic pruning. Basically, we're pruning away uh, those, those areas that we may not use frequently. And so why do our brains do that? Like, why do we overproduce and then start chopping things down? That is a good question. 
Well, I think, so you want to have all those tracks laid out in the beginning so you know what you end up using the most. And then the areas that don't get a lot of use go away because your brain takes up a lot of energy to operate. So, so it's like being more efficient by just keeping the stuff that you actually need and use. So if you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I remember my like basketball, my basketball coaches, my dad, you know, everyone saying like, you need to practice, you know, dribble with your left hand. Um, you know, you need to practice the piano because you know, you need to, you need to like build up that familiarity. So I, I guess that's what's that's happening in this case. If, if you don't practice, um, then those areas are just possibly going to be pruned away. And they like, they pruned away entirely. Like you'll never be able to pick that back up again. You don't lose anything permanently, but what a lot of research has shown is that the later you wait to start trying to learn something the harder it is and the more hours of time and effort it will take um, and the less natural, so to speak, you will be at it. And there's a lot of research in adolescence that there's a lot more of that kind of how are we wiring our brains for adulthood that's still getting done in adolescence. For a long time, it was kind of, oh, it's done by the end of childhood, you know, by the time you're 10 or 11. It's really not the case. There's a lot of this stuff that, you know, what you're doing in adolescence is very much kind of laying down the framework for what your brain is going to be capable of doing naturally and more easily as you move into adulthood. Uh, so in this, in this Blakemore article, uh, again, there was an increase in white matter in the frontal and parietal lobe. So frontal, my understanding of that was... Um, that that deals with planning, uh, personality expression, decision making, and moderating social behaviors. And the parietal lobe dealt more with spatial sense, navigation, uh, parts of language, your sense of touch. So in those areas, we were having an increase in white matter. So I guess an increase in connectivity, but we are also having a decrease in um, the amount of of gray matter. So I guess the amount of processing that could go on in those areas. Does that mean that teenagers are have less processing power that that's kind of what it sounded like to me that maybe they have a little bit less processing power in, um, in the frontal lobe. I wouldn't say less processing power because um, a lot of I think what we think of processing it's like cells talking to each other so mm -hmm. that's actually increasing with the white matter but it's more directed maybe I don't know what do you think Joe it, it's more efficient okay it's like you're getting rid of things you're not using mm -hmm. you've only got so much power from the food you eat and the energy your body generates you can only do so much like i think that makes sense oh okay. and if you've got a whole bunch of things you can't you're not using your body is going to say well you know what i'm not using that so i'm not going to keep it around and waste all the energy on maintaining it let's just get rid of it so we can make the parts that we are using faster better more efficient you know stronger in a lot of senses and so I think that's what you're seeing is, is that you've got this white matter increasing the connectivity. And yes, there's a pruning of gray matter and a reduction of those, those synapses, but it's reducing things that you don't need. It's reducing things that aren't being used. So there's not really a drop off in processing power. So, so the, even though there's less, it's, it's doing more. It's, it's actually better than, exactly. than it was before. Okay, great. So don't worry about that, folks. Don't worry about but, that loss of gray matter. <laughs> In your adolescent years. Uh, I know it was keeping all of you up at night. Yeah. I mean, unless it was something important, you know, you should have been practicing, to be honest. Yeah, okay. so I can't play piano anymore. Okay. <laughs> Same. Okay, so um, to, to continue on, uh, 
uh, in the Blakemore article, they she went over some some studies that were done with uh, comparing adolescents and their responses to certain tasks versus adults and certain tasks. So one of those was something called the trust game, and it was an fMRI study. So they're they're looking at the brain and how it responds to certain things. Um, and in this game, one player hands over trust. Uh, to the second player, which was either the adolescent or the adult. And basically, the adolescent or the adult made a decision whether to... Um, and, the, and handing over that trust involved giving them an amount of money. And the second player got to either divide the money equally between the two players or keep a little bit extra for themselves. Um, and they found that in both cases, when they were splitting it equally, the adolescents and the adults basically had the same reaction in the brain. Like They're like, yeah, that's that's totally fine. Um, when trying to keep more money for themselves, there is found to be um, that the adolescents were using more of their prefrontal cortex, so more of that planning, moderating social behavior as part of the brain uh, than the adults were. So do you guys have any idea of why that might be, that the, the adolescents are having to use more of their prefrontal cortex to, uh, to complete this task? Well, I think there's maybe, <clears throat> maybe two things that could be happening there. Um, first of all, there's kind of a difference in development in different portions of the teenage brain. You kind of mentioned the, the pruning and the increases in white matter in the frontal cortex. Uh, that's where a lot of that sort of social behavior and conscious directed thought is. So that non-fully developed part of the brain is being asked to kind of help figure out what's going on here and help make decisions about this social situation where they're making a conscious choice. The other thing that could be playing a factor there is sort of an expert versus novice experience dependent thing where you know decision making with money is not something most teenagers have done a lot of. It's not mm. something you know, maybe they're starting to learn it if they just got a first job if they're 16 or 17 or um, you know if they have a little bit of income from something. But that that sort of very large activation in the front of the brain is an indication in a lot of cases that someone's having to really actively work their way through a problem, whereas the lower activation seen in the adults can also be indicative of an expert response where they just kind of see what they need to do immediately and intuitively can say, this is what happens. So they're not really consciously working through the problem. So I would think it sounds like one of those two things, or maybe more likely a combination. Yeah, and uh, you know now now that you say that in the article they, they did say that um, one explanation might be that adults make the judgment more automatically than adolescents. So yeah, adolescents like this is a new experience for them, so they really have to think through this. Um, and I was wondering that so if they're if the frontal cortex is what you use for like planning and you know making decision making and moderating those social behaviors, if you have to like really use that area to think about all these things, does that less like does that put like more stress on that part of the the brain so um would that affect decision making you know so to speak like there's it's too busy there's like it's it's overloaded so to make like a lot of complex decisions all at once that might be better done by an adult because part of that decision making has already moved to a different part of the brain and it's more automatic so they can think through things a little bit clearer than an adolescent who has to like combine all these details all at once in the same part of the brain because some of those things aren't automatic. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, what you said 
is right, but like they need to go through these experiences in order for them to become automatic. So you have to give adolescents this opportunity to practice things. Well, I don't know about th this particular task, but in situations where it's like, yeah, adults can handle this, but they need to learn in order for it to become automatic. Yeah, I mean, the adolescents need that experience. They need that practice firing those neurons. And, you know, as we talked about with pruning, you're kind of laying that framework and building the experience. But there is also some truth to the fact that cognitive load is a real thing. And if you put too much demand on somebody's active cognition, you know, there's only so many things you can keep in your head at once. And so if you have a really critical decision, maybe not like, ooh, we're solving a problem in a classroom at school, but we're making a very significant decision that has long-term life effects and, you know, things like that. And maybe you do want an adult to kind of step in there, as a lot of people might intuitively think to do with an adolescent. Because that adolescent is going to end up with that cognitive overload because their prefrontal cortex isn't as developed. They don't have those uh, internalized intuitive responses and reactions that allow them to reduce that demand and make a better decision. So like the teenager climbing up on top of the roof, all the friends are cheering, their crushes in the crowd. They're like, jump into the pool, jump into the pool. It's so many things to think of. You're like, ah, what do I do? What do I do? Um, I personally prefer to do the windmill dunk off the roof, but <laughs> to each their own. And as that, that is you add as an adolescent. So we can we can we just not blame you for that? Be like, well, he was a little bit overloaded. That's that's okay. But the dunk was sick. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, yeah. So it was you had to have that experience. Okay. And I think you, that's a good transition into the executive function stuff, okay. unless you have more to talk about in no, terms I, of development. Uh, no, I think I think I'm, I'm done on this one. So should we take a break? We'll talk about executive function. Sounds good. Perfect. All right. talk about executive function now um, as Ellie kind of hinted at before we took a little break there but just so everybody starts on the same page executive function refers to some of that prefrontal cortex thinking that we were talking about that involves kind of organization and self-regulation um, it involves working memory so how much stuff you can keep in your brain kind of actively while you do a different task and it has a lot of, of impact on how we do consciously directed tasks, how we act sometimes in social situations, how we regulate ourselves, you know, stay on, on task, how we organize our lives. So it, it's a very, very critical area of thinking that there's some really interesting stuff kind of going on in adolescence in terms of its development and use. Yeah, and one um, really relevant part of executive function for adolescents is different types of cognitive control. So they kind of split it into two. I've heard like hot and cold or hot and cool executive function or cognitive control, but I think it's all the same thing from my understanding. Um, feel free to correct us. Um, but basically, cold executive function is like hypothetical situations, low arousal, you're alone, so you don't have like peers around you influencing what you do. Um, and a lot of the ways that they measure that um, include like card sorting tasks. So the, there's the Wisconsin card sorting test um, where they're basically shown these cards and they have to figure out what rules 
um, are part of the deck and the like administrator can switch the rules, but it's basically not like a real life situation at all. And then hot executive function is more of the real life, like high arousal situations, um, which is what adolescents tend to struggle with more. Is it so that is that when like all their friends are around cheering them or someone's filming them and yeah, don't put this on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. It's basically the vine, (laughs) the vine, R.I.P. Yeah, something that um, involves emotional suppression or motivation. Um, So some ways that they measure that in a more like lab setting would be with like the Iowa gambling task. Uh, something oh, like that. yeah. I, I, so I, I had read an article by Dana Smith at the Department of Psychology at the University of Southern California, and she had done some work with the Iowa Gambling Task. And basically, she had taken uh, 10 to 13 year olds and 14 to 17 year olds, um, and some in a, in a younger group. I guess it was eight to eight to nine, and she had them all take this Iowa Gambling Task, which is pretty much they lay out four decks of cards. Uh, two decks of cards are winners and two decks of cards are losers. Um, the, the two winning decks, you like, you win a little bit and you lose a little bit. Win a little bit, lose a little bit, but you end up winning just a little bit. In the two losing decks, you uh, the cards are sorted in a way that you win a lot at first and then you lose a lot and then you win a lot and you lose a lot. And they found out that um, the 10 to 13 year olds had the worst scores. They did the absolute worst. They kept picking the decks where you would win a lot and lose a lot. And according to uh, to Dana Smith, this this showed that um, that it might reflect the their overall impulsivity, um, and that may have led to their that uh, like disadvantage uh, dis- disadvantage uh, performance. So that impulsivity is kind of showing the absence of development of executive functions because they can't stop that kind of addiction almost to getting the big win you know they yeah. want to get that big card and they don't have the control to go wait a second i may be winning a lot but then i lose a lot more i should probably do something different they just see the big win and can't stop the impulse to chase it yeah and yeah and and something i i didn't get a complete grasp of but um you know she she didn't know exactly um what was happening, but she did hypothesize that this could either be due to an overactive emotional or impulsive like response system or an underactive inhibitive system. So basically it's either you you overreact emotionally or you just don't have the ability to inhibit those emotions. Yeah, and that's actually similar to some of the research I was looking at because there are kind of different theories about um, the differences between hot and cold executive function. So one of them is that hot executive function is just cold executive function that's being affected by emotions. And then the other theory, which I think was more new, is that they actually use different processes. So I think actually that um, study you were just talking about with the gambling task is cited as evidence for showing that as kids get older, they get better at that hot EF. And other studies have shown that like hot and cold EF can be weakly correlated with each other. So they might be good at one and not good at the other, but they're not necessarily the same system. I think that's interesting because that kind of helps explain why not all adolescents behave the same way. You know, beyond just everybody kind of has different likes and dislikes, there might be some kids that happen to develop good hot EF control very quickly. 
And so they respond better in those kind of emotionally charged, you know, situations in front of their peers. But maybe they don't do as well when it's that kind of cool mathematical problem-solving side of it. And then you see kids that have the exact opposite. They're great when they're by themselves. They can stay on task on their homework. They can, they can solve problems. But then you put them in front of their classmates and their friends, and all of a sudden you see a totally different kid. Yeah, and I should say typically um, cold develops first. Um, so that's what we see when we're like, the adolescent knows that something is wrong, but then in the moment they actually just do the wrong thing anyway. Um, so yeah, typical trajectory would be like cold and then hot. And that ties into a, a kind of common advice that people give teachers with discipline is that you can you can kind of diffuse a lot of tension and make a situation a lot less unpleasant if you just find a way to talk to the kid about their behavior without the rest of the class looking on. If you call the kid out in front of 25 of their peers, the situation can escalate and get really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But if you can just take the kid in the hallway or talk to him by themselves after class, you let their cold EF kick in, which is usually more developed, and you can have a lot better time resolving a problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. You just blow it way out of proportion if you call a kid out, especially if they're, you know, they it makes them upset um, and they don't stand down. They feel like, okay, I need to one-up you in front of everyone. And, yeah, it just goes completely wrong. I have totally seen that and totally have done that. I may have done it once or twice. <laughs> Good, clean, fun I was young. Family. I was still developing. <laughs> um, Everybody's a first-year teacher <laughs> once. Uh, so... And what I what also I found interesting, and I I should correct myself. Sorry, Dana, it's Dana is is the man. Um, I oh. said she earlier, so I, I apologize. Which I I should know that because I have a cousin named Dana, so and and he's great. I was gonna so, say, is it a boy? Or? Okay, yes, got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it was found that so in in the study it was found that the adolescents exhibited adult like behavior. I thought this was interesting. Adult like behavior on cognitive control tasks. But um, when they looked at the functional circuitry, so like they actually did a MRI scan of the brain, it resembled, the adolescents resembled an adult doing a much more difficult task. So it sounded like the adolescents, like on the outside, it's like, yeah, you're an adult, you're acting like an adult, you're making decisions like one. But on the inside, they were actually thinking much, much harder than, than an adult would have to think. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the, in the episode of adolescents having having to do a lot more thinking just because they're um, they haven't uh, made some things automatic like adults have it's the development and that experience piece that we talked about earlier that they both don't have the fully developed brain and they don't have the experience so they have to put in a lot of effort to get through some of those same solutions yeah and what a, what a sticky situation for for teachers and parents alike it's like well they need the experience but then also you don't want them to make some foolish decision that affects them for the rest of their life so like how do you find this balance and you know so yeah it's really tough but I it's mean, up to you to figure out oh, yeah really though yeah yeah and uh, and hopefully hopefully you make the right decisions i mean we're doing all right i think so yeah. Thanks, Mom and Dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, do we have anything else for, for EF? Nope, I'm good. I think maybe take a break and then come back with something different. Okay. So uh, so we talked about uh, executive function, making decisions for the rest of your life. And uh, so the next segment, we'll talk about some of those decisions. Okay. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you guys in a little bit. <laughs> Thank you.
we're back. And so we just covered executive function and how adolescents can have a hard time with decision-making in difficult situations. So we're going to talk about drugs. Drugs. Drugs and alcohol. I mean, I think anyone who's spent a lot of time in a high school setting as a counselor, a teacher, an administrator, um, any kind of, of healthcare practice that involves teenagers, it's, it's something that is a common problem. Drugs, alcohol, substance abuse, this kind of let's try this and not necessarily thinking about what those consequences are. I mean, I know as a teacher, I, I had kids show up to school drunk at eight in the morning. Mm-hmm. Wow. I had uh, a friend of my little brother who got expelled from school because he was drinking cough syrup by the bottle between classes. Yeah. You know, just making those excellent decisions on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I worked at a school. Kids are passing around a water bottle full of vodka in class. It's like, really? We had a teacher at my school where a kid lit a joint in class, just in the middle of the lesson, just lit up and went to town. And the no teacher, one's nice. The teacher was like, are, are you kidding me? Like, what about this seems like a good decision? None of it. None, None. is the answer. And I know that. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I reviewed this article by Reagan Weatherill and Susan Tapert of UC San Diego. And um, they looked at substance use in adolescence and they had some surprising statistics. So um, according to them, 36% of eighth graders um, had tried alcohol and that moves up to 71% of 12 to, in 12th grade. So that, to me, that seemed like a surprising amount, but maybe to, to some it's not. And then as far as they, they termed it illicit drugs, so I'm not exactly sure what that includes, but I could just think, just think any drugs really, um, not alcohol. I don't think that covers tobacco, but um, it's illicit drugs. Uh, and that was 21% of eighth graders had used illicit drugs, which is really surprising. That moves up to 41% uh, by 12th grade. And according to them, 8% of 12th, or 12, 12 to 17 year olds, 8% of 12 to 17 year olds met the criteria for substance use disorder. Um, so it's, it seems like, you know, adolescents are definitely at risk for uh, substance abuse and substance use. Um, and so they, they looked at um, not just like casual use, but those who are heavy users. So for example, uh, heavy drinking adolescents, and I'm I have no idea how they found heavy drinking adolescents. Or is this like self-reported or? I try and get this study past your local IRB. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if it, it was conducted in the US. I don't know if you know that or not. No, yeah, I, I, I Maybe it's easier to find yeah. in some European countries where I know one can. way. That's true, that's they true. Can, they can get data on stuff like this is using emergency room visits because mm. you, you get, you know, albeit a selected kind of curated sample, if you will, that can pose difficulties for data analysis, but you are able to, to get reliable information if the, the parents consent to letting you use said information um, about how much alcohol, because they can do very detailed blood work mm. and, and you know get an idea of how much there was in the system. So maybe maybe they kind of used that, went to, you know, got information that way, kind of tracked ERs and got consent and gathered data after the fact. Mm. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So what Weatherill and, and Tapert had, uh, you know, in the review, they said that neurotoxins like alcohol and drug use may interrupt neurodevelopment. So they looked at heavy drinking adolescents 
and they found that they had a smaller hippocampus, which would, is related to memory, and a smaller prefrontal cortex, which, as we talked about, related to planning, inhibition, and self-regulation. Uh, then then not, there some non-drinking controls. Um, so, so smaller areas for planning, smaller areas for memory. Um, they also found that there was abnormal white matter integrity. So uh, I guess the, would that be like this, maybe the strength of the connections or how well insulated those connections yeah, like related are? related to transmission from one cell to another. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they found abnormal white matter integrity in the corpus callosum, which my understanding is it connects the two hemispheres um, in the frontal cortex. Uh, the temporal cortex and the parietal cortex. So basically, almost everywhere. It's just bad news. Yeah, I'll it's say. yeah, it's not good. Well, and there's other. I mean, th- this doesn't even get into, and this is a little beyond our scope. So we're we're not going to dive into it too much because this isn't a, a deep biochemistry podcast. But in terms of just you, know, you've got the developmental ramifications there. Even kind of a step away from those you have significant changes in the dopamine and serotonin behavior in your brain. And those are two absolutely critical transmitters of information in your nervous system. So when you have these teens with substance abuse, not only are they significantly altering just like the physical development of their brain, they're altering how those signals are sent and received Mm. at, at a very, very microscopic level that has potentially profound lasting consequences. Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about, this is just a time period of tremendous change. Um, so, you know, any anything that you are doing to uh, to your body and to your brain is, is really gonna have a, a major impact. Um, and so then they looked at marijuana users as well. Um, and they, they found that they had increase activation in the frontal and parietal areas during tasks that require tension control. So kind of like adolescents who you know, really have to think about things really hard with, it, with you know, using their, their, their frontal cortex, uh, marijuana users had to, had to use it even more. Oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. I'm just thinking. I was over winter break at some pizza joint in Colorado and this guy is clearly a user and he was trying to seat us. And we were like, hello, we've been here for about an hour. He's like, okay. Like, thank you so hard. <laughs> it's like real life. <laughs> well, I, th- I, think, I think it's an important thing, though, for people w- when they hear about neuroscience research that it's one of these many kind of misconceptions or things that make it hard to digest, like you mentioned at the start, Michael, is increased activation is not necessarily a good thing. No. People think, oh, more activation, that means you're using your brain more. Yeah. Well, by some measure, sure, you are using that area more. Maybe but, like 11%. But using it more <laughs> is not good. Using it more can indicate less efficient thinking. It can indicate reductions in ability that force you to engage more to solve a simpler problem. So whether or not more thinking is a good thing depends on the question you're asking and the context. If you're using more because you're pushing yourself to solve harder math problems than you've ever solved before, Super, using more brain power is a good thing. If you're using more brain power after abusing drugs and alcohol, that's a bad thing because that means you've done enough damage to the brain and its architecture that you now have to direct a lot more resources to solve the same simple problem. Yeah, and um, and I, I should say that the, the study on marijuana users, it was in comparison to 
those who don't use. So yeah, you're using those areas more um, than people who don't use, which, which they said um, suggested that marijuana users exerted more effort when trying to self-regulate. Um, and they also found that probably not surprising in those who use marijuana deficits in memory, attention, planning, fine motor skills. Um, but surprisingly, that was even after three to four weeks of abstinence. So, um, you know, there, there were some lasting effects. But I, th I think a, something that was that's good to hear for adolescents is that adolescents um, in, in the studies that the, these two researchers reviewed, um, they were better able to recover. So after those four weeks, they're better able to recover. Um, but although there were those deficits still at, at three to four weeks. That's the blessing and the curse of the brain still being developing. Yeah. Is the substance abuses and, and issues, there is the potential for them to do a lot more harm to a developing brain than to a fully developed adult brain. But the flip side of that coin is that a developing brain has the capability to recover more from an abuse like that or from some kind of, of trauma or injury or, or damage that can be caused by that than an adult brain. So yes, they're more vulnerable, but that also carries with it some ability to recover if an intervention can be made. So, you know, I was, I was, I was thinking about, you know, when I was in middle school and elementary school, we always had the, did you guys have the D.A.R.E. program? Yep. Like a police officer come in and be like, oh yeah, don't do drugs, drugs are bad. They never really told you like why drugs are bad. You just knew that bad people use them, and um, and I, you know, I I know a lot of people had found that to be not sufficient. You're like, yeah, when you're a kid, you're like, yeah, okay, they're bad, but then you wonder like, well, why are they bad? And you were never really told. And I'm wondering if um, if you know a program like Dare w would ever think about taking an approach like this. We're like, well, actually, here are some real consequences, and it's you know, it's not they're not like dire consequences. There are definite consequences. You will have deficits in memory, in planning, fine motor skills. Um, you might even have smaller uh, regions of the brain, you know, like for, for memory or in your prefrontal cortex. And like th these are actual consequences. Uh, and maybe that would make things more salient for students. Be like, okay, um, I don't want to have a smaller brain. I want to be able to think. And, you know, and, and thinking goes beyond just academics, right? Like you could even tie it to sports or something. You know, if you, if you have, um, especially if it, if it affects your fine motor skills, you know, any, any ball playing sport, you know, that could really have an effect. So maybe that would help if you could bring in the neuroscience um, involved with drug use, you know, like what, what is actually happening to your body. Maybe that would make things a little bit clearer for adolescents other than just saying like, just say no. I think the trick with things like the D.A.R.E. program isn't, I mean, the information and how you, what you present and how you present it is part of it. But I, I think part of it is just overcoming the sort of mental block that teenagers and high schools put up when it comes to anything it kind of forced upon them by the school. It's mm -hmm. that sort of hot EF. You put a bunch of kids in the theater or in the gym or in an assembly room of some kind and put some adult in front of them and they automatically just tune out. You know, I, I, I can think of a number of times where if I talked to a kid one-on-one, -on -one, they totally understood, yeah, alcohol's not good for my brain, marijuana's not good for my brain. But mm. you put them in that setting with one person in front and all of a sudden it, it just turns into that hot EF, I need to look cool in front of my friends, yeah. I'm not gonna pay attention, I'm gonna make fun of the guy and not listen. Yeah. 
And so I, I wonder if there's, I think there is a place for changing the information that's given. Mm-hmm. But I think there also might be a place for trying to find ways to, to engage that more developed cool EF side of the teenage brain in maybe smaller settings. You know, maybe instead of having the guy come and talk to the whole school, yeah. he talks to one classroom at a time or talks to small groups somehow because maybe then you don't get those same effects of just kind of tuning it out because the school made me go to an assembly and I'm going to sit with my friends and play games on my phone and not not care. Yeah, yeah. So it just just a thought. Like, well, you know, as a kid, I'd be like, yeah, I always wonder, like, well, why is it bad? So, you know, if they told me why, I'd be like, okay, yeah, I don't want to have a smaller brain. I just, that's not cool. <laughs> small brains small, aren't cool. Small brains aren't cool, man. Okay. Um, so with that, that's, that's kind of like maybe a bridge to our next section. We're talking about, okay, how can we apply some of these, uh, research findings to, you know, the classroom setting or, you know, school. So, um, Joe, would you like to, to pick up on that? Well, I think one important thing we want to accomplish just in a general sense with these podcasts is, is translating that research. Like you mentioned at the start is that there's a lot of really cool neuroscience research and a lot of it is very heavily directed at education. But I know for me, at least in my classroom, I didn't see any of it. I'd have loved some translated neuroscience findings to help me put things into practice. Um, So I think it's important that we try and do that and, and say, hey, like, yeah, we talked about executive function, but what can we use it for? How do you put that into play in a classroom? And on that one, there's some really interesting work um, that a group at um, a number of universities, it, it's, a, it's a large group of researchers at um, the University of Glasgow, the University of Edinburgh, the University of Aberdeen, all in Scotland, in addition to the University of Sydney, that built on some work done previously. And what they've done is they've looked at designing science curriculum that lowers the demands on executive function. So instead of asking high school students to, okay, we're gonna keep in mind, you know, this chemical structure and this mathematic formula and this set of numbers about something else, and then you have to use all of that to draw this and solve this, there's just too much going on for their working memory to handle. So it's that that, that cognitive load that it's just, it's a little too busy up up front. Exactly. There's too much going on. And it's not that they can't solve the problems. They're capable. They just literally can't keep all the information in their brain at the same time. So what this group has done is started to try and design curricula that lower the demands on working memory through just subtle changes and and the use of, you know, models that or something that are built. So instead of having to remember the molecular structure, you just have a little model of it in front of you. And they've actually had, while not uniformly like amazing results, they have seen gains and fairly significant gains in terms of performance on you know, tests of knowledge and content in these chemistry students by doing nothing but reducing the working memory demand. They're still learning the same concepts. They're still learning the same breadth and depth of material. They're just slightly tweaking how it's done to account for working memory. Yeah, that reminds me of a an article I read. I can't, oh, I can't remember the the name of the the researcher, but essentially it was saying that the the capacity of of a, a student's working memory is limited in some respects. So, um, you know, I know a big thing in education is constructivism and inquiry based learning, which I think I think is great in a lot a lot of ways. Um, but I think there is some sometimes it's taken too far where you just 
okay, go, you let, you release the kids and go discover exactly how to do this math problem. And, you know, they have to read this question, they have to figure out what it's asking them, they have to comprehend it, then they have to remember how to do the math. And it's all just like this big overload. And, and so this researcher was, researcher was saying that, you know, you can do inquiry-based learning, it just needs to be heavily scaffolded. And, you know, and of course, it's not going to be the same scaffolds for everyone, right? Because people are going to be at different levels. But, um, you know, it was the same concept as you just cannot overload students' brains with like, okay, you need to remember all these different things and then somehow apply it all at the end. Like you, you really have to provide them models and scaffolding uh, for them to, you know, su to successfully learn that way. Yeah, that is actually reminding me of one of the classes I'm in right now um, called formative evaluation. And they were talking about how when you're testing someone's understanding at the end of some learning experience, you need to make sure that they had all the proper inputs that are necessary in order for you to get the outcome that you're expecting. So like that might be like, oh, they saw this particular piece of text on the website. Um, but yeah, you can think about that in terms of the brain too. Like if you're giving them all this stuff at once, they might not have the opportunity to actually absorb everything that they need. Well, in that inquiry, I mean, I think a lot of people in your kind of inquiry example, that's what guided inquiry is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not always that way. I think that's one problem we have with these curricula changes that can account for executive function, working memory, is that, yeah, it's great. And when it's done right, like these ones that they very carefully developed in these studies with, you know, 10, 15 different researchers, it's, it's wonderful and it works. But the problem is most teachers don't get the support and the training on how to actually do that well. And so it turns into either the same thing they've always done just with a slightly different question or this totally unstructured chaos that doesn't really work. There needs to be some of that scaffolding and guidance. Yeah, I think that would be a great episode actually to, uh, to talk about some different pedagogies and how they relate to uh, adolescent brain development, you know, childhood uh, development and you know and see, and, and see if the if there's some neuroscience to back up any of those there's so many things that they're studying with the teenage brain that we might be able to make fairly small changes um, the University of Oxford in England is, is leading a big study they've got a pair of studies actually and I think they have about 60,000 high school students total that are just that they're looking at physical activity in one group and then in a different group, they're looking at changing the hours so that kids can sleep in. Move the start of school back to 10 a.m. Yeah. Keep them in school till 5. Yeah, as a teacher, I'm like, yes, let's do it. Teachers think it could be cool. There's, you know, research. We haven't, you know, talked about it in too much depth because we have constraints on how much we can cover. But teenage brains, your sleep cycle changes. They stay up later, they sleep later. So why not start high school at 10, keep them in school till 5? Because their brains are more able to process and work and learn in those hours. It's a fairly simple change with a little neuroscience behind it that could make a big difference. I honestly think we'd all feel so much better. Teachers and students would be like, all right, 10 o'clock, I can do this. I can go run in the morning. I can eat breakfast. I'm at school until past five anyways. Might as well. Have the students with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why not? I mean, so sometimes they're there until five, too. Yeah, they're, some, they're just hanging out because, you know, they've got nothing else to do. It's like, okay, well. Yeah. You can put sports practices in the morning for the high school students. So instead of being at school till 7 or 8 p.m. for a practice, they could come in in the morning if that was a better fit. Oh, yeah. Or you, know, you could restructure a lot of the day. 
or like with with cross country, it's like, well, pra- you got to go to school. It starts at 7.30, so come to practice at 5.45. Oh, I remember the days swimming. I was oh. in the pool at 5 a.m. three yeah. mornings a week. So, um, <laughs> Cold mornings in the winter. Yeah. In Arizona. In Arizona. Hey, we swim outdoors year-round. Not many places do that. Okay. My flip-flops froze to the deck. Fair, fair. <laughs> um, so, and, and they're using just the the neuroscience of the developing brain to to make those like recommendations or changes and, and that's why they're looking at it yeah they've looked at you know the the kind of neuroscience behind sleep cycles and found that teenage sleep just the natural hours they tend to sleep change and we don't reflect that in our system right now and you wouldn't have to change anything about the school day you yeah. could still have the same six seven whatever number of classes a day the same bells and whistles and all that all you'd have to do is just move it back two hours move it back an hour and a half and you could probably see a lot of benefit to the kids. And a side benefit is there's a lot of evidence that suggests you'd see drops delinquency rates because mm. most teenage delinquency, you know, you know, shoplifting from the, the gas station on the corner or something happens between 3 and 5 p.m. Mm. because the kids are out of school and mom and dad are still at work. Yeah. So you'd remove that problem as well. Let's Little do it. Little changes. <laughs> okay. Um, do we have any other practical implications? I know we didn't get to a whole lot, um, but th- that last one actually seems like so useful. It's just like, okay, that makes sense. Let's do it. I think the point is that there are simple changes we can make. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about completely revolutionizing the system overnight. Yeah. Fairly simple changes that can hand have a pretty big effect. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that could be an entire episode. So maybe it will be. Yeah. Let's do it. Making our own suggestions. Okay. Well, hey, like let it. us know. Let <laughs> us know if, if you if you want to hear an episode about little changes we could make like that or how to you know, alter the school day to make it more neuroscience informed, let us know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, our information is in the description below. Uh, do we have anything else, guys? I think we're good. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, and we hope to catch you next time. 